Hi there, and welcome to One Body, One Life, proudly sponsored by Jamae's Fine Foods. I'm Vicky Nguyen, and I'm on a personal mission to live to 120, and I would absolutely love to take you on this journey with me. This show is focused on longevity and understanding how we can all live longer and stronger through diet, exercise, lifestyle, nutrition, and so on. Each episode, we will uncover tips and tricks to living your healthiest and happiest life for as long as physically possible. I'll be chatting to the experts as well as people who have defied the odds and explore various treatments and modalities to help us all reach optimal wellness. So today I get to chat to the lovely effervescent lawyer turned entrepreneur Sarah Davidson. For those of you who are familiar with Sarah and if you follow Spoonful of Sarah, you'll know she's the queen of puns and quotes, is an absolute delight to watch and her self-deprecating humour is what sets her apart. Sarah is an author, a speaker, an event host, an MC, a brand ambassador for many well-known brands. She's also a host of Channel 7's Wellness Australia and has her very own podcast called Seize the Yay. Sarah hit the spotlight with her brand Matcha Maiden quite a few years ago, which saw her not only launch product, but also open an entire cafe dedicated to matcha. Sarah is super passionate about supporting others help find what makes them feel yay and fighting A-type personality tendencies towards success and perfection, but rather learning to enjoy the ride. So I've had the pleasure of meeting Sarah a couple of times and I caught up with her recently at the Fit Her Expo in Sydney and thought it was the perfect opportunity to invite her onto the podcast as a guest. As you all know, One Body, One Life is all about what we can do to live a longer, stronger, happier and healthier life. So today I wanted to focus on Sarah's life and her mindset and what she does to always keep her yay vibration nice and high. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see you. It's so good to see you too. And I've been wanting to get you on the show for a long time. I know you had so much happen in your life. And um, we share, you know, not only sharing a passion for much, we also share a passion for helping people. And I know you've got your podcast and you've been a busy girl. So please, for the people who don't know you, I'm sure most of my audience do, but just in case, tell us a bit about you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Where do I start? Um, oh gosh. So I guess right back from the very beginning, um, I was adopted from an orphanage in South Korea. And I think that has always set me up with a very intense need to make the most of this wonderful life. I think because I've always known sliding doors moments are so powerful. But for one thing that I didn't deserve as a tiny baby, I got to live a life in this most amazing country in the world. So I think that sets you up to be a little bit of a, an overachieving, intense A-type personality. So from the very beginning, I've kind of loved to just try everything, lots of different things. I don't think I ever had pigeonholed myself as a sporty person or a creative person or a nerd. Like it, I was, I just loved being all of those things and trying everything. And that kind of continued through most of primary, high school, even university. I've always done like a broad range of things and loved intellectual pursuits but then also was a ballerina did a lot of crayon graffiti on the walls have always had these kind of artistic creative outbursts in between all the nerdiness uh, and I think it, being multi-passionate is amazing it makes it very difficult to make decisions in life about your pathway um, and I kind of ended up in law at the end of school because I had happened to do better than I expected went to a very academically focused school. So the values that had been around me were academia, sensible professions, um, and again, gratitude for, oh, I've got this opportunity, I should take it, never really thinking if it was suited to me or if I wanted to be something else. It just sort of was like, 
this is a sensible, wonderful pathway. Let's do that. So I started my career as a corporate lawyer and had an amazing time. I was never one of those corporate refugees who really hated where I was. Um, I think, in fact, it was a bit scarier that I was really gratified by climbing a corporate ladder and wearing suits and having prestige around my title and getting off on the hustle and the long hours were like a badge of honor. And I think a lot of us in the wellness world now have got there through some kind of rude awakening where you realize that's not a sustainable way of life. Um, And it was really only a happy accident that kind of showed me that there were other choices or other pathways um, that you can take in life. And I would have ended up there for a very long time just because it ticked a lot of boxes. It was a really wonderful career, but I um, ended up getting adrenal fatigue um, through a a lot of burnout and overdoing it, but also um, I got a gut parasite during a trip to Africa, couldn't drink coffee, couldn't drink alcohol, had to really learn wellness for the first time. I'd never had to appreciate my health very much or earn it. And in that process, discovered matcha powder was a form of caffeination I could drink, which I know I don't need to pitch to you. (laughs) Um, And that led us into business, which then accidentally really led me away from a pathway I never actively chose to, to discover that actually, if you find something that unites your skills with your joy, and there's, there's some overlap somewhere there that all the success, financial prestige metrics fall into place. They don't need to be first for things to work. Exactly. I think in a different order, if that makes sense. Yep. Amazing. And so this brought you to, so go on, keep going. I don't want to interrupt. (laughs) So from there. Yeah. So from there, we um, very much, my husband and I very much started the business because I couldn't get matcha in Australia. I'd been overseas. So hard back then, wasn't it? It was just a totally different landscape, but it was strange because we had quite an advanced health food market. So people were adventurous. They'd try spirulina. I think that tastes like foot and people would drink it. And I was like, matcha tastes so much nicer and it's less foreign. Like it's just green tea. You all know what that is. You've just never seen it powdered. So it came about because I couldn't drink coffee for another sort of three years. Um, My adrenals were just too compromised but we couldn't find it accessibly. And so we we ordered a bulk amount. It ended up being too much. We thought, let's just throw it in bags and sell it for fun. And I think many stories happen in that accidental way because if you knew the real risks, maybe you wouldn't begin it. It'd be too scary. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we, we started Matcha Made in that way and it took on a life of its own and grew and grew and grew until... I literally arrived at this fork in the road where I couldn't do both anymore. My career was suffering. Matcha wasn't growing anymore because I just had no more hours left. Ended up leaving the law firm and going full time and then went on this matcha mission for seven years of just responding to, instead of having this like incredibly planned out certainty-based life into just like responding to (laughs) wherever the world was taking me. Until COVID, really, and that was when, um, just before COVID, we had hit this scale where I was no longer the best guardian. That winging it startup method that I love was no longer suitable to to maximise its potential. We needed, like, a lot more experience in FMCG. And I'd also kind of stumbled into this Seize the A philosophy and the podcast and speaking and had realised maybe I was on the cusp of another chapter and the whole idea that, your life, your dream life 
looks different at different times. You don't just find one job and then live it forever. So we ended up taking on some investors and then they wanted to buy the business. And so we sold the business and then I stepped into CCA full time. And that's what I do now. (laughs) Yay. That's exactly right. And so what about, I mean, obviously so much like just if we pull it back right to the early days, if we go back to the adoption, because you say like that being adopted, at what age did you become aware that you were adopted? Yeah, good question. Uh, I can't actually recall a conversation. And I think perhaps that's why it's never been traumatic or troublesome for me because my parents were very, very communicative, like almost before we even knew what it meant, we were told, we were kind of cold, like introduced to the concept as soon as we could physically understand it. And also I think in cross-cultural adoption, when you're fully Caucasian and your parents are Caucasian, you were going to ask questions anyway at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think we've always known. you just always known. So, so as long as you can remember, you've just always known and it was just, and, and did, did you feel different? Like, did, was it something that you, like when you were young, going to school, having a mum who was Caucasian, being Asian, was that something that, because it's such a unique situation for most people? Yeah, we definitely. So I think when I was really young, before school, I think childhood is so unburdened by what other families around you are doing. You don't even know any any different because you don't see other kids. So I I wouldn't have noticed for most of my childhood. I mean, I might have asked mum once, like, why are our eyes different colours or different shapes or but not really appreciating like she was just my mum she's the only mum I ever knew so I don't think I questioned it much until school and then sort of understood people looking like their parents or them asking me why I didn't look like my parents and me thinking what do you mean like that's my mum can't you see like that's my mum and I think one of the really difficult things that happens in school generally is that suddenly everything that's different about you, you just want to suppress it to fit in. And I definitely went through a phase where it was a bit confusing and I I did suddenly have a lot of questions about it. And I went to a very Caucasian local Catholic school. I was probably one of two Asians maybe, so it wasn't multicultural to begin with. Um, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I have definitely experienced racism through my school years, but Overall, I think there was more curiosity than there was negativity, but still those questions trigger things in you when you're little that you're like, why are you asking me this? But I think because we had such an open an open door policy at home to ask any questions and it's always been celebrated as a beautiful thing rather than an abandonment or... I think I definitely grew a thicker skin from all the questions when I was younger, but um, it also, it's, it forms who you are to get comfortable with what's different about you. And now I think it's so unique and interesting and exciting. Yes, absolutely. And I love, I just love the way you share your life and, you know, your humor and your self-deprecation and just everything about you and how you own it. And, you know, cause it is such a unique situation. And I, I know there'd be questions like even myself, I was curious as to know, understand your backstory. Um, but I think like what you said earlier as well, like just coming from that as well and having that first to, you know, you've been given this opportunity, being adopted into a beautiful home, beautiful country. Um, and you, you want to take life by the horns and, and run and do as many things as you can, which you've done clearly. And you've had that experience of the adrenal fatigue as well. So you've kind of, you've done it all, but 
um, yeah, I guess, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you was like, do you, did your, do you have, did you have a curiosity about your biological parents? Like from, from a young age, was that something that was playing on your mind as well? I think I've definitely asked about it and had chapters where I probably asked more questions than others where I don't even think about it at all. Um, I, I think my, yeah, so my younger brother was adopted as well when I was four. So he's not my biological brother. He's, but was adopted from Korea as well through the same. Ah, wow. So from four at a very young age, I was exposed to the process again and the whole mum's not pregnant. We are going to pick up my brother. It's not his, you know, you're not biologically related, but he was just my brother. My brother. Yeah. So my you. brother. We were born on the same day, four years apart. So the idea of like destiny and chosen family has always been very present in our story. And then our parents have been so open with encouraging us to explore our Korean identity, the language, our birth parents, if we wanted to. And honestly, I think when you're younger, because you just ignore all those, the things that make you different and you don't really understand cultural significance. In my younger years, I was just not interested. I was like, I don't even know who that is. I don't speak Korean. Um, they took us to back to Korea in 2002. So we, when we were both a bit older for the World Cup, so we could experience the language and the food and see if it Amazing. any, you know. Yeah, anything in you. We were clearly tourists, like Australian <laughs> kids, just like so raucous. Yeah. Definitely wasn't like a coming home to the motherland, but we met our foster parents who had looked after us when we were sort of between birth and being adopted. And I think that really ticked off any sense of who looked after me when I was, before I was with you. And that was those parents rather than our birth parents. Um, And then once I started to get a little bit older to appreciate how significant that was, and particularly now being pregnant and realizing actually as from the adult's perspective, rather than the child, as a child, you just don't care. You're sort of like, my life is here. I don't even need to open a can of worms. As an adult, I thought that, I probably had more curiosity about I have no blood relatives, I had no fertility information, maybe for medical information I'd be curious. But honestly, I'm so full from my family here that I think if you're driven to that, it's often through a gap. It's through feeling like you don't belong or feeling like something's missing and I've never had that to drive me to to do it. It's also very, very burdensome. It was Korea in the 80s, there were no good records they're all physical like there's nothing computerized it was a third world country at the time so if you said to me your birth parents are behind that door I wouldn't say no I'd be like that's so cool I get to see what they look like and I've never had anyone genetically look like me but I wouldn't if you told me there were 10 years of hurdles which is often the case the desire just isn't strong enough for for me personally I get it yeah amazing and Congratulations. We haven't spoken about it yet, but congratulations. You're Thank expecting. You. How many weeks are you now? Or months? What are we 21. in? 21. Oh my goodness. Over halfway. That's so I exciting. <laughs> so exciting. You're glowing. You look absolutely gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Um, I don't feel it. <laughs> you look amazing. I've been following your stories and I've seen, you know, the days when you're not feeling so great and yeah. I saw, <laughs> but you look amazing, honey. And the other thing I was going to say, so even now, like even going through this process of, cause you've had quite a journey as well, which we'll talk about in a moment, but mm-hmm. like ha- having your own baby, you know, that you're growing inside you and then 
you know, understanding perhaps what your biological mother went through to have to give you up for adoption. Like what did, yeah, do you know any information about her at all and her reasons why? So often uh, you don't, not only like are you not told it if you don't ask for it, but often there is no record of that because sometimes it's quite secret. At the time it was very, very difficult for Korean women who were out of wedlock to have children. So often the circumstances are usually not super rosy you know it doesn't you, you don't go to the lengths of putting a child up for adoption unless there's something that's quite traumatic for the mother so either they they hide they don't want to be found because it was a secret or um even if the records are you know a couple of people have found out bits and pieces that we know like we've got a big network of people who are adopted at the same time um but i there's no information um they my parents weren't given any at the time so i don't actually think there is any but I mean, if you read between the lines, it probably wasn't a great situation. And it's it's funny, there's a group of four of us, four girls who were adopted the same year, and three of them have had kids and then I'm now pregnant. And we've all agreed that your whole life you develop this approach to your adoption and what makes you feel comfortable, how you speak about it, how you feel about it. And then you don't think that's ever going to change until you get pregnant and then suddenly you have this hat on of your birth parents and you've never had that before because it's just not relevant to your life. It is the first time I've really thought how difficult it must have been because the the nine months in gestation, I wasn't aware of that. So I never think about that period. And then the zero months to five months when I was adopted, I don't have any memories of that. So I've just never engaged with like my life starts in the first photo that I have of my mum and I. So everything else is like nowhere. <laughs> but the, it, it forces you to confront someone was 21 weeks with me and someone was in labour with me. And I think you, if anything, it just gives you an enormous amount of compassion for that the person who had to go through all that and not keep their child. And it gives me even more compassion for my mum here thinking she didn't go through that and she got a fully baked five-month-old who doesn't look like her and then just loved me. Like, that's also pretty weird. And I've never thought of that before because I just was like, duh, I'm your daughter. Like, of course you love me. But in 1989 and both sides of our family are from very Caucasian country towns, the fact that my grandparents also just totally embraced us when they'd never seen Asians in their town until late in their lives, like all that has started to come up in ways I've never really thought about before. Yeah, and I know it makes some fellow adoptees quite emotional about thinking of their birth parents now and thinking of the children they have and how they could never leave those children. And, you know, I think that will probably hit me when we actually have a baby. Um, Right now it's more just the miracle of the fact that I ended up here. Like it becomes so clear how unlikely that was. Exactly. But look at you. I mean, look at your mum must be so proud. She must be so proud of you and your achievements, your attitude to life, your mindset, all of it. You're amazing, Sarah. You know this. <laughs> you know this. But you know, a lot of people are coming from such a unique situation. I guess like you said before, like you're so full in your life. You've got so much love and support around you. And and hence that's the, you're the outcome of that. So I think um you're very fortunate. And yeah, and it's good also that you've got a support network of other adoptees, as you say. 
How did you find them? Like, how do you find each other? So our parents were actually connected when they were going through the process originally, I think at the time. So different countries are open for adoption to Australia at different times. And I think mid eighties to mid nineties were very open between Korea and Australia. So a lot of um, families who were going through, like there's a lot of hurdles you have to go through. And as a support group, they were all connected to sort of reach out to each other. Some of them even like flew over at the same time. So since we were babies, we've all known each other and had catch-ups and at, yeah really really it is and, and then I've like just along the path have met a few others just out and about who were adopted at similar times and I think because of that it's so normalized like when we were younger before we even went to school we just knew lots of other kids who were adopted and looked Korean and had Caucasian parents so it was really helpful in us not feeling like we'd never seen another family who was blended. Like if anything, they were the only families we hung out with until we all started going to different schools. And it, it, I think that also really did mean that we never felt like it was weird or we never rejected it. Like how come our family looks different? Cause we were like, look, there's seven others in suburbs that are five minutes drive. It's not that weird, which now I'm like, so it's good. So it's amazing how that worked out for you for your parents yeah and now I mean like particularly in our age group not so much now but I mean I've run into Korean adoptees from the 80s and 90s everywhere like it's so funny the places you'll you'll run into them because in that era like that was the country where and like I think China was open at the time so there's quite a few Chinese adopted and then later in the 90s it becomes more like Burma, Thailand, Southeast Asia, depending on just what was going on in the world at the time. So you actually encounter people more often than you would expect. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. It's really funny. Yeah. And so do you know if you've got any biological siblings? No, I have no idea. And I've done um, like a few DNA tests. Um, I did the 23andMe one in LA more just to see if I had any markers for that I need to look out for health-wise. And I really think that if you did, they probably wouldn't be people who were doing DNA tests. You know, like the ancestry ones often connect people. I think it's so obscure that it probably wouldn't come up and nothing did come up. Um, but I do, uh, so this time we, I took Nick back to Korea. He'd never been just a couple of weeks ago. And we knew we were pregnant because we hadn't told anyone, but we knew we were pregnant. So it was even more significant. And I saw my foster parents for the first time in 20 something years and they have young children biological children who were nine and ten when I lived with them for five months so to me they're the siblings that I think of because I'm like they remember me when I was a baby and they remember going on family holidays and we've got photos together and I feel somehow connected to them because they you know, they the um, children are all grown up and have their own kids, but so they weren't there. But the parents were sort of like they were asking about you because you were so cheeky when you were little, and like that to me. If I encountered a biological sibling, we'd have no point. Yeah, it'd just be like maybe we'd look similar, which would be cool, but there's no memories or experiences together to talk about. <laughs> exactly. And did you find when you were in Korea, were you looking around, like, are you curious? Like, could that be my mom? Could that be my, like, does it get like that? It, it's sort of like, it doesn't when I'm there because I feel like such a tourist. It's so clear 
anyone who's grown up in a Western society stands out like a, a sore thumb because our body language is just so much more raucous and like the way we dress, like we're not speaking Korean, obviously. Um, so I don't so much look around and think that, but I sometimes have a thought of like, that's how obscure my birth parents are that you could point to anyone and tell me it was them. And I couldn't say yes or no. Like that's how much I'm not connected to them that I, if you said that's your dad, I'd be like, Hey, <laughs> can't say any words to you. Like, yeah. And I, it's interesting. I'm from a, so I was apparently, I'm from um, quite a small town called Daegu and the population from there specifically don't look traditionally Korean. So I don't, I didn't see, and I don't usually in Korea see as many people who look really similar to my face structure, but they all know straight away that I'm from that town. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's weird. (laughs) That's crazy, isn't it? But I guess it's like in other countries as well, like they know based on yeah, like dialect usually, but this is based on face structure. Yeah, it's very clear. There's like, I mean, obviously not everyone looks the same, but there are clear um, genres of like face shape and face structure from the north, from the south, from like this country town. And like these like cheekbones are like look like apples and it's the city of apples. And like there's like, I'd, I wouldn't know, but people are like, you're from Daegu. I'm like, how do you know? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. And so what's it like as a town? It's the third biggest um, city in Korea. So it's quite industrial, I think. Um, it's not like a country town or anything, but I haven't been back since I was eight because it's there's just like we go to Seoul to visit. Obviously, Seoul is such an amazing city, but the orphanage where we were from is from there. So if we meet, you know, when we caught up with our foster parents, it was there. Um, when I took Nick, we went to Seoul. We sort of, there's nothing in really, really in Daegu to go back to. And I think it's a three hour train ride away. So I haven't been back, but I hear that it's like a big city and. Um, amazing. Korea of- all over just looks amazing. Yeah. It's so much fun. So much fun. Do you speak Korean as well? No. So this is one of the things that our parents did say, like, if you want to learn Korean, we'll take you to Korean school you know, whatever you want, however much you want this to be part of your life. Um, but there were just no Korean language schools in near our suburb. So it would have been like a one and a half hour drive, I think, on Saturdays. And I was a ballerina and I just was like, I'm not wasting time on Korean. Like, I don't, who do you even think? I don't even know what Korea is. Like, I'm Australian, obviously. Like, I clearly have had some times of like, I forget all the time. Like I genuinely, that's one thing that is unique about the experience is you forget often I'll look in the mirror and like, I'm Asian. Wow. Like a totally forget. Um, but I did because of like how accessible language, other languages are in Australian schools, learn lots of other languages, just never Korean, which the Koreans find really weird. But I'm like, in Australia, like it's French at school, Italian, Chinese, Japanese, no one learns Korean. Yeah, German maybe, but so I learned like seven other languages, but Korean just isn't, it's not accessible. Maybe now it is. Um, it Did you have a desire? Not really. I think it's, I just like, I've always learned, my goal originally was learn the UN languages because I thought I'd use law for diplomacy. So I went like French, Spanish, Chinese, a bit of Russian, a bit of Arabic, like trying to get that um, as a six, a set of six. And um, 
that it's always been based on like how useful would this be to me in a work context or in a just curiosity travel context and then Korean for me is it's I think like I the way I describe it is and this is such a weird thing to say to anyone who's not adopted is it's literally like picking a Caucasian person on the street and being like why don't you learn to speak Korean and they'd be like I don't live there I don't I'm not dating a Korean like I mean it's not quite that obscure but almost like I like my actual Korean identity as a Korean person is like zero to five months old and then the story but in terms of like my mental connection to feeling weird if I can't express myself in that language I don't know when I'd use it I don't know so even when you went there there was no affinity like to like you didn't feel like a homecoming or it's like part of you because I guess like you said the exposure was so little yeah, it's it's funny. It's in between nothing and something. So it's not like the homecoming that I think a lot of people have who maybe were born somewhere and their whole family's culture as immigrants are, say, Greek or whatever, but they've never been back. And then they go back and they remember they were there until they were eight and it all comes flooding back and they their parents make sense and the stories make sense. It definitely is not that level because there's just no memory base for that to, to sort of happen, but there's also not nothing. So we, on the first day, went to one of the temples, uh, the palaces, and all the tourists dress up in hanboks, like the traditional Korean dress. And, like, everyone does it for the novelty and it's so much fun and they're so beautiful, like these beautiful dresses with this like just so intricate and for everyone else it was like this big novelty whereas I felt I've had houndbox my whole life even though I don't wear them like we've had them for our we've got baby ones and we had toddler ones and then um yeah literally it's the Korean version of a kimono and putting it on to walk through the street like I was living my best life I was having the best time and it, it felt like a lovely part, like a nod to that side of me that was more than someone who didn't have that connection would feel, but not so much as like, I've come home to my motherland. Yes. Yeah. understand. They're just a little bit warmer than that. Warm. Yeah. There's a warmth of like, I'm so connected to this place without Mm. being. Massive part of your life. Yeah. Yes. Or my life. It's just like a, an old, an old friend or something. Yeah. Amazing. So what about like, obviously um, there would have been some challenges that you faced, like being adopted perhaps, or just when you were younger, what would you say was the biggest one that you had to face and overcome? Yeah, I think um, the biggest was being more confronted or being confronted earlier than a lot of kids with difference. Like you just stand out like a sore thumb being Asian in a Caucasian school anyway, then when your parents come and they don't look like you, and it is, I mean, we're a much more multicultural society now, so it's less weird for you to have Nguyen as a surname. Like, that's less unusual. But it was very much more unusual in certain suburbs when I was Totally. So, yeah. Well, my mum's quarter Japanese as well, so my grandmother's Japanese. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So she, my mum was, yeah, kind of one of the very few Asians as well. And back in those days, that was the fifties, right? So it was wild. very <laughs> wild. Yeah, exactly. So my grandmother was, 
<laughs> so my grandmother was a war bride. So, but she was, the reason why I asked about if you spoke Korean or if you learned Korean was, um, cause I wondered if there were any laws around that. Cause my, part of her coming to Australia, she had to sign or agree. Um, the government stipulated that she wasn't allowed to teach her children Japanese. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So they had to integrate. And so my mum and my auntie don't speak Japanese. That's it's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I was just curious about if there were any laws or anything around being adopted as a Korean. Was it something that, yeah, you no, forbidden to no, do? No regulations around what you have to or what you can't do. Um, I think there's a few, there's like been a few times. So I didn't go back for 20 years because there were a few weird um, citizenship things about military service eligibility over there. So that was like a bit, but otherwise, and that was more paperwork than anything. And at that end, not this end. Um, so we've never had anything like that. But I think in terms of like challenges it brought up, it was just that most kids, yeah, struggle with having braces or having a pimple or like a, I don't know, being bigger or smaller, or there's always something that if you're not like just stock standard that you will be teased about or asked about. And firstly, it was why are you Asian? And then it, on top of that, why are your parents not Asian? And then if it ever was a taunt, it was like, they're not your real parents. And um, I, I, I'm sure it was a lot harder than I remember it being because now I have such a positive glow around the whole experience. But I mean, definitely I didn't have a huge friendship base in primary school. I like was quite of just a lone wolf doing my own thing. Um, high school was a lot easier because the schools themselves were a bit more multicultural. So it wasn't, and you and also in and the parents are not so involved as well. Yeah. Your parents are there all the time. Whereas in high school, they don't even know who your parents are for most of the time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I probably struggled less in high school with firstly racism, secondly, just questions about adoption. And also I was more balanced about my answers as well. It didn't bother me. We asked about my real mum because I'd be like, dude, I don't even know if your mum's your real mum. Like, <laughs> you even know, you know, like you don't. Like, you generally have you done a DNA test? Like, you guys don't know either. So, you know, it just kind of it it get, got easier to have a retort for those kind of taunts. Like, that doesn't bother me. Um, I think I then went through the the challenge in my teen years was a little bit more my identity as like trying to suppress being having any Asian affiliation like I was almost at pains to be like I'm so integrated like oh wow I do not want to wear like you know when it was cool to have like Pokemon t-shirts ironically like blonde people could do it and I was like no I don't want you to think I'm not ironically wearing this t-shirt because then you'll think I'm a really Asian Asian not that there was anything wrong with that but I, <laughs> I I'm, Western, I'm an Aussie Asian yeah like I really needed to prove in that time that I was not going to not stereotypical school and not stereo yeah not stereotypical for who know I don't know why I cared what people thought about it um and yeah I think and then in this chapter the only thing that's really come up has been fertility like the background of not knowing and um randomly my husband's mum is also an Asian that was adopted into a Caucasian family oh wow so you picked him well so that's wild. amazing but we had no you know we had like three quarters of our medical history was a mystery so that it became more of a medical scientific challenge 
but a lot of people don't know parts of their family tree and I mean even if you get told there's a risk of something what are you going to do with that information exactly exactly and you're young enough anyway it's like you know and plus with all the scans and everything these days I mean we'll talk about that in a second as well but just on that note of difference so how did you overcome like was it your mindset and your humor that got you through I think it was having really amazing support like I think you listen to whatever's loudest and I I wouldn't say like my entire high school or my entire primary school was being bullied like there were definitely chapters that were really hard and were really awful and that made me question if I was worthy or if I was pretty or if I was my parents were if our family was as valuable or if we loved each other as much Um, but I don't reflect on that as like the majority of my time and I think it it was because our family was all my relatives like so unbelievably supportive it was adoption is so not a big deal we forget all the time having friends so if I got bullied at school for that I would just go to one of my best friends from our adoption group and we just nutted out together as like as if that matters. Um, and I think it's the same now with, in a different context with self-doubt. If you're, if the percentage of the haters is louder than how much you try and counteract that with supportive friends and voices, then it will win. So you just go to the sources that will give you the comfort and warmth and support that you need to remember that's not real or that's just someone else's opinion and that's got nothing to do with your life. Like, you know how everyone says, other people's opinion of you is none of your business. Like it really doesn't matter what they think. Um, and it's when you're a teenager, it's hard. You think that's the entire world and your life is over. But having good friends and good family, um, and this is a really weird thing to say as well, um, which I probably haven't ever said out loud, but it helped a lot that I, w- I could spin the Asian thing to be exotic, like which is terrible. Like that's a terrible stereotype, but I know that my younger brother struggled a lot more with it because an Asian man is not exotic. He's just an Asian dude and he looks very Asian. And so him doing like AFL and cricket and being really jockey Aussie things as an Asian young boy was not like, it's fine. It's normal, but it's not exotic or interesting. He's not like more attractive because he's Asian. There's no spin on it. So he struggled with the racism because it was like, I've got nothing to say back to that. I am like, what do I do about that? I can't. Whereas for a girl, you know, there's sort of more like, um, made it work for you. Yeah. There's more movies where like the love interest is Asian and she's exotic and you can, as I got older, I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely not a blonde, blue-eyed girl. I had to accept that. And so I'm never going to be that. Then, so I'll lean into, but I am beautiful in a different way. And that's definitely like a pretty privilege that like adopted men don't have, or, you know, people who like, I don't know, don't, I don't know. It's just, it's a weird thing that I think happened where I lent into almost a stereotype that is not a good thing to do, but it helped me at the time. Yes. Yeah. Well, you work to your strengths. You made it work for you, basically. Yeah. You spun it in a way. The yucky way. (laughs) But I mean, in high school, it helped. (laughs) 
Yeah, of course. Exactly. So just taking a break from today's episode to introduce you to our sponsor, Jemay's Fine Foods, helping you to live a life of longevity through your diet. Foods such as nutritional lattes, superfood breakfast bowls, sweet balsamic reduction, and our latest product, the Hoodles Healthy Instant Noodles, which all can be found at jemaysfinefoods.com.au. Now back to the episode. But your mindset, obviously, that's what I want to focus on a lot, is because it feels like that you the upbringing that you had and the the love and the, you know, that tight support group that you, you talk about, like that played a lot into your success in life and your ability to overcome challenges and obstacles and so forth. So, and it's all for me, it's your mindset that sets you apart with lots of things. Um, but tell us about, obviously, even with your journey towards motherhood as well, you've had some setbacks there. Talk to us about that and how your mindset has helped overcome those challenges as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I think being adopted definitely sets you up really well for developing strength in how you think about the world because it is all about perspective from very young and you are kind of putting a spin on everything. You're putting a spin on difference from the beginning to make it a positive. So it's like a muscle that you've learnt to flex earlier than a lot of other kids and that has seen me through, I think, yeah, other unrelated challenges in my life because I have had to practice like I could see it the shit way or I could see it the good way and the facts don't change either way I'm not I can't change this story I can't change these facts so how do I interpret them differently to make it a better situation and I think the more you practice I think mindset is something that people think you're either born with it or you're not like you've either got a disposition or you're a pessimist and I don't think that's the case at all and I think finally there's some scientific evidence out there that neuroplasticity is a thing you can change your brain so if you were born a really negative person with enough practice you can rewire your thought patterns to be more helpful to you and and like it takes a lot of work and therapy is expensive but you can do it so I think through through practicing that I have like, and also with my mum being very similar, she thinks in, we're very, very close and she thinks in such a similar way that if something shitty happens, then you can't change that it happened. But there's usually a lesson or some kind of redirection in there that was saving you from something that was coming, like your bad luck. You never know what worse luck your bad luck is saving you from. So either things, either things go well and amazing or they go badly, but they saved you from something worse. So Totally. You can always reframe mm, in a more I subscribe way. to that thinking too. It helps a lot, especially yeah. if I'm held up. I'm like, okay, maybe it's saving me from a car accident or something. Totally. <laughs> Little things like that. Yeah, and like it doesn't change anything about your situation at all. So like, and it doesn't hurt anyone for you to have your little Delulu moment where you're like, I choose to see the positive spin on this, but you just live <laughs> exactly. a better life, right? Like you're, you're happier because it helps give you perspective. So I think that has stuck with me as like, well, in any situation, obviously I have days where I just spiral for no reason, but in most tough situations, I'll mope and I'll have my reaction. And then very quickly, I'm like, okay, but where's the lesson or where's the silver lining or where's the something that makes this worth happening? And um, it's the same with, and there are obviously there are some things that you can't rationalize that way, but in most cases, it's, it's more helpful than not thinking that way. So we had a miscarriage earlier in the year in um, March and obviously you can't have the rosy rainbow, everything happens for a reason over things like that. Like it just doesn't work in those situations. 
But a similar version of that is just trusting that the universe is doing things in its own time. Maybe not that it has to have happened for a reason, but just that um, I think you have to trust that like things are conspiring to work in your favour if you position yourself in the best way. And so we had started trying late last year. Um, I'd come off the pill a year before, had very long cycles, so I had no idea when I was ovulating very quickly and we're very lucky we got pregnant within two months and we had, because of the adoption, we booked um, a fertility specialist just to do all the tests that most couples wait until six months or a year to do, but we just thought we've got no picture whatsoever, so we'll just do it straight away. Had the appointment booked for January. I thought, like, she'll ask if I'm pregnant, so I should do a test just because I was pregnant. I had no amazing. Idea. And it was amazing. It was like the most exciting surprise. I didn't even know I could get pregnant. So it was wonderful. But very quickly from pretty much the first scan, there was no heartbeat. Another week made it sort of 80% sure. And then another week was like, it's 95% not viable, um, but you're still growing. Your body won't probably pass this quickly by itself. So I ended up having a, um, a DNC operation in early March. and. I couldn't get into the operation, so I had to stay pregnant for another three weeks. Oh, wow. That's tough. It was awful. It was so awful knowing that, like, there was no line in the sand. I wasn't building back to a new cycle. I wasn't progressing towards something. I think that's really the mindset that helps me. But I think the more you learn your brain and the more you learn what helps and what doesn't in certain situations, the more you just work with what you have. And so I knew... I've got three weeks now of like the worst time will go so slowly. Nothing will feel like a step forward because it's not until the, the surgery happens. It makes no sense. I can't rationalize why there was no medical reason why it happened. It's just statistics. And so I just had to very quickly get into like, okay, if, this, if the purpose was not to teach us something or to make us learn something about our genetics or whatever, I just have to think we were a statistic. Everyone, there's like one in four, one in four pregnancies mm. happen. Um, uh, include me included, yeah. Everyone I have spoken to, for no reason whatsoever, it's just something that happens. So I'm like, okay, well, if one in four, this it happened on our first one, it probably won't on our second or our third. So like, okay, I have to go through this. So what am I going to do for that three weeks to make them less awful? <laughs> mm, exactly. That's a long time to wait. I think I had to wait a week, but yeah, it's it's a long time to wait. But I mean, yeah, week, it's it's awful. It's tough, and it's probably the worst procedure. I mean, it's just horrible, just the whole experience. But um, yeah, I empathise. But I I feel like even with you, because you also lost your dog Paul as well. And do you want to share that story? Because I feel like for you, maybe it was timing. It was timing thing. Yeah, yeah. So we um, so March was the um procedure, like the first week of March, and I used I went so I'd had three weeks of just distraction you can't do anything about this you do need bed rest but that's not going to help your brain so be busy and then you'll have the surgery you can have the bed rest then went into um, international women's week distracted myself again with work and just distracted myself until I didn't need to anymore and then slowly slowly started to put the pieces of healing back together and our beautiful golden retriever Paul is like he is was the best dog in the entire world like anyone who 
followed him knew he's very human. We've had him for 12 years. He like is not really a dog in his mannerisms. He was just like out of the box, like loves costumes, really obedient, just a beautiful, beautiful animal. And so he was like a pillar through that for us to just have cuddles and unconditional love during that time. Um, and then rebuilding to get a cycle, like my body was just not happy. So the warmth of a dog is just so comforting in that time. Um, and he'd had, he'd actually had cancer, but he, for the, you know, on doggy acupuncture and lots of treatment, he was good. Like he was energetic. He could walk, he could eat, he could do all the things. And then, um, later in the year, very, very suddenly it all escalated in one day and had to put him down um like the afternoon that it had all the same afternoon so it was so sudden very traumatic having to make a decision rather than it just happening it had been 12 years the best friend um but it was two or three days maybe I think away from the first scan in this pregnancy where we did have a heartbeat which we had never gotten it's amazing last it's night. amazing so the love kind of shifted from him to something else and yeah the attention yeah to, for me it feels like a timing thing for you but I think beautiful so. yeah yeah but what a beautiful dog I I feel like I knew him even though I didn't I just saw him on your stories and your posts and everything <laughs> I, I <laughs> seems so obedient <laughs> we had like you know an enormous amount of messages about um about the miscarriage when we we took us a couple of months to talk about it like thousands of messages and which eclipsed our wedding our every other announcement we'd ever done and I thought that was it. And then Paul died and I was like, the internet basically wanted a national holiday. Like people who had never messaged me before, like in the request thing where they're like, we followed, we never message you, we never comment. But like Paul, like people, vets were crying and sending videos of him crying. Like people, they love dogs. They don't care about humans. Yes. They love dogs. <laughs> Well, he seemed like such a good dog. He just yeah. seems so a bit. You dress him up and do all sorts of things, and he just happily sat there. And, he was so you know. good, and it made me really happy because I was like, he obviously spread a lot of joy to people. Like a lot of the messages were that in lockdown, he did a lot of yes. funny videos. They were like, yes, he just got us through. Well, he's an extension of you, you know, <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah, so it was it was beautiful that you know he and he wasn't young, so he had a good life. It wasn't like he was six or something. But it has made it a lot easier to process having this little transfer of a heartbeat. Energy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And so what? how do you keep it together? Because there's so much happening in your life. I don't. Tell us. You don't. <laughs> well, you look like you do. <laughs> because you've got, I mean, you've got your podcast, your host of, you know, Wellness Australia segment. You, you do so many things. You're an MC, you know, you're an ambassador for lots of brands. You do so much content creation. Like <laughs> where does it stop? It's like, how the hell do you keep it together? Um, <laughs> I, I really don't. I'm like very, um, so I, I think I'm one of those people and it's been the same my whole life where, you know, we all have just like a, a level of busy where we thrive. And for some people that's higher and for some people that's lower, like my husband's the same. If if we're doing one task, we're useless. If we're doing 12, like we'll just fit them all in and be really efficient. So firstly, I think our like natural level of stimulus and fulfillment is doing a lot of things at once. Our brains really like that. Um, 
I probably though <laughs> interpret that a little bit too intensely. It's like I, instead of five things, I'm like, let's do forty and let's do them tomorrow. So the A-type personality never left you. Yeah, and I think also just like being excited and gratitude is also something that can make you like over-appreciate opportunities so you'll never say no to anything, which also maybe not necessarily a good thing when you can't pace yourself properly. So I think I, I love doing a lot of things and I often am doing a lot of things, but I have learned from trial and a lot of error that – I have to then let myself not be together and lose all those marbles more regularly than I would if I didn't book in those sessions of downtime. So I didn't use to plan anything. I wouldn't block out rest. I wouldn't do any, take any measures to kind of have checks and balances and make sure I wasn't burning out and I would burn out like chronically, including after the wellness industry, I would be like, everyone look after your health and wellness. I've got a wellness business and I have adrenal fatigue again because I didn't pace myself. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's a common story, isn't it? So common. Such a common thing. But do you think, do you feel like now you're changing things up a little and now even with the pregnancy hormones flowing <laughs> through your body, it's a bit more, you know, the relaxant, has that kicked in? Yeah, I think, um, so two years into Matcha Maiden, I had another big health breakdown. And that was like actually embarrassing. It was very, a big wake up call of sort of like, you are preaching this message to people. You've left corporate to look after your wellness. And then now you can't do your job because you just overdid it. How embarrassing is that? What a wake up call to be like, you are a fraud really for telling people rest, meditate. And like, and then you're like on the ground. That was probably the first big, like, okay, I've made lifestyle changes, dramatic career changes, and it hasn't helped me, so I'm the problem. So then that was around 2016, and I was sick for, like, a year. Like, not like I could work, but I was touch, you know, really not operating at my best. Not vital, yeah. For probably 12 months. And so that really led to instigating forced breaks working hours, boundaries I'd never realized are necessary, Sundays off my devices, you know, things like that kind of you don't have, you take the choice away from yourself by having a rule, basically. I was like, if I know I can't have my phone, then I can't overdo it on screen time because it's just not there. Exactly. That's good. And better for your relationships as well. Yeah. And also better for your life because you don't enjoy it when you feel sick all the time, even if it's like your dream life. If you're exhausted, you just can't enjoy it because there's no emotional capacity left. So started around then and then I think really I just got better at tweaking that system um, and not doing things back to back. And, you know, even in your calendar, like looking, do you have three things in one day for more than one day in a row? Like really people facing things? That's probably too many. Like I can already see it. So why are you even going to try? Yes. Um, and then, just learning to say no. Yeah. And then I think COVID was the icing on the cake for not being not having the pressure to say mm. yes it's so nice in some ways wasn't it in a weird you couldn't. way yeah 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 so I think that even more reinforced how much the yes was more out of like my sense of obligation or FOMO or whatever it was um and I, I've got a lot even better at scheduling and not feeling guilty about needing to just be quiet and be alone and be a sloth and 
on CCA, I like started calling it sloth sloth Sunday. So it was like, I'm actually trying to not move. I'm not going to have a shower. I'm not going to, like if I watched Netflix for 12 hours, I've done 14 days of work in six days. So seven day seven can be like nothing. Um, and then in pregnancy, it was, that was good practice. Cause I have been like so exhausted or so nauseous that you don't have a choice. So I still get it wrong all the time. But it's <laughs> good for you. I remember one year my um, resolution was to watch more television because I knew if that was my resolution, I'd actually have more time sitting down. <laughs> Never <laughs> happened. But, you know, things like that. It's because we're so driven to do so much and, you know, feel like I feel empty space all the time. But you're right. And it's good to have these lessons. I mean, you've had a few, obviously, with your health setbacks. But I think this pregnancy as well for you, like you've experienced like just the forced stop the forced rest because you just don't have the energy or you just don't fill up for it. So that's a good thing. So what, it's a good thing for you. So what mantras do you live by? Because I know you're the queen of quotes and puns and all sorts of things. What are the mantras that you live by? Oh, well, or quotes. I, th- I think the, the bad luck one, like that really helps me in a situation that's gone pear-shaped. I'll immediately go to, okay, well, if you had that, if you like, this is, you know, a, an obscure example, but like if you had a little bingle in your car, it had a car accident in your life, in your destiny this year, it was this one, like you're lucky, that's amazing, move on. It's, don't waste your energy on it anymore, like just be safe. Um, so that whole the, the good luck, bad luck quote really helps me. Um, I think um, the Maya Angelou quote is probably my favourite about how People will never remember what you said or what you did. They'll always remember how you made them feel. Made them feel. I love that too. It's one of my favourites as well. Yeah. It's so true. I just think we agonise a lot over perfecting the product or the speech or the caption or the copywriting or the image or whatever it is, the output that we're creating, thinking that we're Leonardo da Vinci and that's going to be on a wall for like a million years. No one's going to reread that in five, five minutes, let alone five years but they'll remember the feeling they got when they read it from you. And like your legacy is that not the, like we spend 90% of our time on perfecting the words and the actions rather than being led by what feeling do I want to create? And then go backwards from there. And I think if, as soon as I started making decisions more on how do I want every human to leave my presence, then you worry less about how you create that feeling and you don't worry so much about, oh, I screwed up that word or I said it wrong or I... It's not relevant anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you just do what creates that feeling and then it all kind of falls into place a little bit Beautiful. Well, I think you're doing well, Sarah, (laughs) because you make people feel great because you're so addictive to watch (laughs) and it's your personality, but you're so funny. And, you know, it's your energy. It's the energy. And, you know, energy, like passion, ions, which I was talking about this the other day, like energy, the exchange of energy is so important in relationships and in any connection or any relationship. And and that's what you do so well is you pass, pass that passion or the ions, you pass it on through your content, through your smile, through your words, through your quote, through your CZA, just in general, just, just meeting you. Like you're so effervescent. That's what I said in the intro, which you haven't heard yet. But yeah, your effervescence is, you know, what really sets you apart. So you're doing a great job. Oh, thank Keep you. it up. Right back at you. Tell us. Yeah, no, you're doing an amazing job. Tell us about the book that you've written. So that's based on CZA, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much. So I've been doing... Um, the podcast CZA for two and a half years or something at the time. 
and uh, the opportunity came up to write a book and I sort of had always wanted to write one. I've always loved writing. I did lots of long theses in my legal career because I love formulating a long form pieces of writing. And for the longest time, I I knew I wanted to write one, but I didn't know what I wanted to write. And I was like, well, don't force something because it just will be hard and it won't, you know, it just, there's no point. Um, But at that time, I had sort of been thinking, I've learned so much about mindset, as you said, and humanity and habits and um, challenge and all kinds of things from all these interviews, but they don't live anywhere. There's just sort of a go back to this episode and listen from 17 minutes inwards or this person said this, but then this person also said that in a different way. And if you just listen to all of those 400 episodes, but at these points, then the same message will come. You know, there was no like guide where it was all in one spot. For Even for myself, I wanted to think, what have I learned from this? And... Yeah, like a highlight reel and also a bit of the context behind. So I'd done like an intro episode about adoption and about all the reasons why I thought all those things. And then if you listen to like episode 80, you wouldn't know why I was saying the things that I was saying because like you hadn't gone back to episode one. So I sort of thought I would love in the future to have, like I write a lot of diaries because I love to look back at who I was and what I thought at a particular time. And I was like, how amazing would it be to have a comprehensive, if I had a keynote that was a book long, what would I give you? And it was, that was the book. I was like, what, every thought I have about joy, hard work, change, discomfort, adoption, family, what is, what is me? Yeah. (laughs) Encapsulated into a book. So basically like snapshot into your brain in this book. It's my brain. It was like my brain (laughs) on that, at that And I haven't yep. written another one because that's still my brain. Love it. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, there's been a few. It's so good. There's been a few things that like have evolved, but nothing that I'm like, yep. that doesn't represent still how I feel about life. Like that's still. Yes. Solid. That's still, if I wanted you to get my head, I'd give you that book and say, read it and you'll understand me at the end. Perfect. Has Nick read it? <laughs> well, <laughs> he had to sit and listen to me for like months just being like, this chapter says this. And he's like, I know. I know your brain. <laughs> That's good. Well, that would help him get along with you and just, you know, understand you better. <laughs> I don't so actually think he's read it since it was published because he read it so many times before. He's just like got PTSD Fair enough. me saying the same thing. <laughs> well, he's done all the proof, so that's the main thing. <laughs> now tell us about what you think are the top three tips to living a longer, stronger, happier and healthier life. I think the the most important thing is the people you live that life with. So they will either enhance your experience a hundredfold or detract from it and make it harder and more stressful and more complicated. So I think it's, yeah, choosing who you share it with. We're on earth for like a long time and you want you want the people around you to make it a joy to be on the journey with. So that's definitely, that's number one for me. Um, I think number two is particularly recently, I think a lot of the idea behind CZA was changing metrics for measuring my life from success, financial markers, my title, my promotions, like what I thought measured a really good life, offering it to be more like, am I happy? Am I healthy? Do I have joy? And honestly, 
Yeah, peace. Peace. So on a smaller day-to-day scale, like I've almost taken it a little bit too far for my age. I think you, you shouldn't get this lax with things until you're like in your 80s. But I'm very much like if it costs you your peace, it's too expensive. And also the reverse. If it removes stress, then it is never too expensive. Yes. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Yes. Yeah, so it's good that you've come to this at such a young age. No, it's like you not. Said. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it is. But I think that's what's come out of COVID as well. Like so, what we were saying earlier, like a few good things did come out of it. And I think for me, a lot of people around me are of that thinking now. It's like yeah. they value their peace. They value their time. They value their relationships and things that spark joy in them that are not you know, financial gains or materialistic, you know, or materialism rather, or consumerism. It's like more based on the personal fulfillment as opposed to an external, you know, it's an internal thing more so. Yeah, it's good. And if it, and memories, I'm like, if it makes good memories, like, am I going to care about the extra $30 it cost me to get the better seat or like whatever it is? Like if I'm taking my mum out for something special and it's a little bit more expensive to get the nicer experience like do the nicer experience which is it's a privilege to be able to say that of course within reason but I think so much of people's time is just agonizing over like is it the sensible thing to do yes should I yep, do it bloody just do it and I'm like <laughs> it feels good think about 80 year old you are you going to remember that no exactly exactly <laughs> and your last point what's your last tip oh this is so basic and silly and I don't even listen to it myself, but really it's just like get enough sleep and drink enough water. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I don't I love either. It. Well, it's true. You don't? Well, that's going to change. I just like, I'm too excited. It's... I just like want the day to keep going so I can do more stuff. It's beautiful. And the water thing, like I love, I'm like a big Frank Green drink bottle girl, but I just, yep. since I've been pregnant, I hate the taste of water. Oh, wow. No. Just put put some matcha in it or have it hot. <laughs> I also hate the taste of matcha in this chapter of my life. Oh, really? I, I don't hate it, but I've just had too much. But just off it. Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. I know I can relate to that because I go through the lattes as well. Like now at the moment it's dreamy vanilla for me. Don't put turmeric in front of me. I've had enough. Yeah, like you know when you taste it, where the taste testers and the trial for all the ingredients and Nick is – He'll drink plain matcha, but he didn't like flavors or baked goods or whatever. So I just eat and drink all matcha products all day, every day for seven years. And then I just now. You've had enough. I'm okay. I'll. um, Done with it. um, I've had (laughs) one matcha latte and I loved it in Korea, but I was like. Yeah. No. Done. (laughs) That's hilarious. But you know what? This baby is going to force you to sleep as well and drink lots of water, especially if you end up breastfeeding because your body's going to need all of that. So. I think um, it's a great one. And lastly, where can people find you? Oh, I live on the internet except on Sundays. So. <laughs> we know. That. So on the internet. You're amazing. <laughs> on the internet. And so the handle is Spoonful of Sarah with a few underscores, isn't it? Yeah, it's Spoonful underscore of underscore Sarah. And like everything else, the podcast, the speaking, everything else is there. Like everything starts from there and you can find it all there. So that's probably the easiest. Amazing. Thank you, Sarah, so much for your time and sharing your story. I could keep talking to you and delve into that amazing mind of yours, but (laughs) otherwise I think for now I could just buy the book. It's called Seize the A, is that right? Yeah. Which is available where at all good bookstores and online? Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And when's your due date? April. Four months. 
So what does that make it? Have you followed the Aries. zodiac or the Chinese Aries? And what Chinese year is it? I have not looked that up. I just already realized I'm an Aries and Nick's a Leo. So I was like, that's three fire signs. That's going to be a lot in my house. <laughs> I don't know. What that's to okay. Have to look you have up. to look it up. But you know what? Get 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 a feng shui person around to your house to balance out the fire element. Yes. That's what we did. <laughs> Do that. You need that. Because there's certain elements you can bring in like color and like we had to bring in steel components to because we had a lot of fire in our kitchen. So to balance it out, we had to do a, a few different things as well. And oh yeah, just God. do it, do it. It's worth it. I will actually get, I'll get your recommendation for people to do it because I definitely yes. do that. <laughs> and we also had a building biologist um, come through the house and tell us exactly the best position to rest the baby at night. Or, I mean, the babies end up sleeping with us, but which way for head position. And once the kids got older, which way to face their heads and their beds and all that for good energy flow. Because they look at where. It's amazing. I'll flick you the details. Please Get do. a building biologist. Yeah. Because it all helped. It all helped. We had dream babies and <gasps> dream children. Yeah. So it all helps. Oh. Because that's what you want. Oh, yeah. 100%. That's going to help you get the sleep that you need. <laughs> Good chatting. Lots of love. All the best with the rest of your pregnancy. No doubt I'll be following you and commenting and messaging you through Instagram anyway. So if people want to find you once again, it's um, spoonful underscore of underscore Sarah on Instagram and you can find all of Sarah's information there. Thank you, gorgeous. So good to see you and I appreciate your time greatly. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute delight and you asked the best questions. Oh, you're welcome. We'll touch base soon. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on our YouTube channel, One Body, One Life, to see more inspirational videos to help you reach optimal wellness and longevity. But until next time, don't forget, you've got to nourish to flourish.